and something was going wrong for them and some need wasn't being met. Um, and that emotions happen in people when they're frustrated, when their needs are frustrated. And if they don't get expressed, um, if they're not allowed to drain, as, as some people call it, they, the tendency to react that way again is, is even more because it's a real need. Welcome to the A Different Kind of Psychiatry podcast brought to you by the ACO. I'm Dr. Chris Burrett. Each month, we feature a patient interview, case presentation, or interview or discussion with one or more of our doctors who practice a different kind of psychiatry. We are interested in your questions and comments, and I would love to hear your feedback. Send an email to aco at orgonomy.org. The best way to help the American College of Orgonomy spread its knowledge is by letting others know about us. If you enjoy the podcast, we'd appreciate you leaving a rating and review. If you're interested in attending one of our webinar presentations, you can meet the doctors and join in on the discussion afterwards. If you're interested in training with the ACO, you can learn more about the medical orgone therapy or social orgonomy training programs. You can connect with us and learn more at orgonomy.org. This episode features the audio from one of our ACO case presentation series webinars. Dr. Jackie Bosworth tells me about a situation with a restrained adolescent named Stevie and how she was able to resolve the tension and bring relief. Listen in to hear how Dr. Bosworth was able to connect with Stevie and show him and the staff another approach to emotional and physical distress. Welcome to the ACO's A Different Kind of Psychiatry Case Presentation Webinar. We're glad to have you. Today's presentation is entitled, A Single Encounter Had an Incredible Effect on a Teenage Boy, presented by Dr. Jackie Bosworth. Hi, Dr. Verrett. Hi, Dr. Bosworth. Good to have you. Dr. Bosworth is a child, adolescent, and adult psychiatrist in New York City, where she also sees families and couples. She holds the position of Senior Medical Director at a residential treatment center in Westchester County for adolescents at risk. She is a clinical associate of the American College of Ergonomy and has authored numerous articles in the Journal of Ergonomy. So Dr. Bosworth, before we begin, I'd like to let the audience know they can ask questions in the Q&A section at any time while we're talking, and we'll get to them at the end. So, Dr. Bosworth, this incredible uh, encounter, can you set the stage, let us know where you were and, and kind of how things developed? Sure. So, um, I used to work physically in a residential treatment facility part-time, uh, and that differs a little bit from where I'm medical director now in that um, the children there, adolescents primarily from ages 12 to maybe 20 years old, um, have diagnoses of emotional disturbance and they also have IQs below 70, which is very low. I see. Um, so... This uh, facility has a campus where the children reside, and it also has a, a school 
which is um, actually just above my office. So this particular day, I was called upon to um, assist in a restraint, in a physical restraint. So the patients live there, have school there, and, and how long might they be there for? Well, the average length of stay is about a year, though with COVID, it's been a little bit more difficult to place children afterwards, but um, it's a temporary setting for them. And so what happened in this encounter? Um, so whenever a child is held in physical restraint, it's required by law that a physician come assess them um, during or after the restraint. So in this particular instance, I was called at the very beginning of a restraint, and when I got up there, I came into a classroom where the child was being held. Um, and what I saw was a very large but somewhat naive-looking or or young-looking boy. I would say he was about six feet tall and upwards of 250 pounds. And he was being held in restraint by three security staff. Um, two younger men were holding each of his wrists. He was flat on the floor on his back. And a third security staff, an older man, was holding his ankles. So this isn't uh, mechanical restraints. This was uh, staff holding him down, restraining him physically. Correct. And, and what was this young man's name? Stevie. And, and so when you walked into the classroom, what did you feel? Um, it was a bit overwhelming. Um, in addition to the child being held in restraint, which I'd seen frequently before, the room was filled with school personnel, um, a nurse, um, and it was it was like a stage practically. Uh, it was intimidating initially, mm. and I also saw that the boy wasn't being physically hurt, which was you know the initial assessment that you have to make when you come in to evaluate an, a restraint. Uh, but he was moaning at the time, and he was clearly very unhappy, very miserable. Was anyone else saying anything? Um, so initially, no, but after a, a couple minutes, um, you know, I could hear Stevie saying, making these moaning sounds and saying things like, let me go, and um, one of the security that was holding him said, we'll let you go if you can remain calm. And um, he kind of made an angry moan in response to that, but they did let him go. And he was able to back up against the wall and, and sit up at that point. Did you say anything? Um, For a while, I didn't say anything at all. I was just observing. Um, but when I felt he was calm enough, I sat down next to him. I, I 
sat down on the floor, folded my legs, and just looked at him, and he wasn't looking back at me at all. And then I waited and introduced myself, said, hi, Stevie. I, I didn't know him before. He wasn't a patient of mine. He was um, one of the other psychiatrist's patients, so I'd never met him before. And I told him who I was, and uh, again, he just wasn't looking at me at that point at all. Dr. Bosworth, what I just heard you say is you walked into a room with a restrained young man who's maybe twice your size. I know the audience can't see how big you are, but you're not six foot tall and 250 <laughs> pounds. And, and you didn't know him. You knew that there was some kind of a, something that happened that he needed to be restrained. And I heard you just go in and sit next to him. That stands out to me. <laughs> maybe you could say something about that. So there's always fear in, involved in a situation like this. I mean, a child would not, theoretically, not be as restrained unless they were a danger to themselves or to someone else. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I, I certainly didn't know what precipitated it at this point. So I didn't know how much the potential for violence was. But I was observing him, and mainly I saw that this child was suffering, that he was de felt defeated. He looked like he felt defeated. Um, he was moaning. He was didn't look like he was in acute danger at that point, and I felt comfortable enough to sit next to him. But, yeah, I guess in a way it was taking a chance. There's also the security staff right there, and if anything were to happen, there would be some sort of a warning usually, and I could back away if I had to. So you use your initial observations both to kind of see where Stevie was after the acute episode to see how the staff was to develop some comfort and also know that maybe that's what you had to do? Is that I'm, I'm not sure what you're asking, Dr. Burt. Can you? Um, what I heard you say, just to, I want to make sure I'm on the same page, is you used your observations kind of initially to develop some certain level of comfort with the situation, knowing where Stevie was, where the staff was, that they had your back, you know, if, if um, he was going to be more aggressive. And, and also, it sounded like you sensed that being close to him, um, and not uh, taking charge and, and, and being aggressive yourself was what Stevie needed. Yeah, I mean, mainly I wanted to see if there could be a, a better resolution to what was going on at that moment, and I very much identified with how much this child was suffering and, and unhappy, and... I didn't feel threatened by him in any way at that point. I should. And so what happens next? So um, after I sat down, uh, again, I did a lot of waiting, um, and he wasn't making eye contact with me at all. But I did notice that he was breathing kind of with a jerky motion, um, 
you know, kind of struggling and still making these moaning sounds. So I told him, just breathe, breathe deeply. Um, and that kind of, he did that, and that kind of brought out more of his moaning, whatever was held within that moan. I believe it was anger, defeat, misery, sadness, a combination of emotions. Um, Did he look at you? Was he um, lined up with you? Still not looking at me at that point. Um, so I, I think I tried to um, make some connection, and I said, you know, I know this must be very hard for you. And at that point, he started crying a lot louder. And unfortunately, or maybe fortunately in the long run, the nurse that was in the room standing close to us said, um, calm down, calm down. And I felt that that was very wrong, you know, a very wrong thing to say and counterproductive, not helpful to him. So I told Stevie, you can cry as loud as you want in a very loud voice. And, you know, I think that was very much what he needed to do because he immediately started crying a lot louder and looked at me even. Um, at which point, after he stopped crying briefly, I asked the nurse to give him a tissue, which was right next to her. And she handed it to him, and he kind of blew his nose and passed the tissue back to her. <laughs> so it was indirectly a way of getting the nurse not to tell him to calm down anymore. Yeah. yeah. Um, how did you uh, come to that conclusion um, that that's what he needed? It was written all over him. You know, you could, again, something about this child's, um, I don't know if I, naivety is the word, but um, there's something so direct about him. Like it was all there to see. You just had to look for it. And um, again, I, I saw that he was quite miserable and and even a little fearful. And, and I said to him at one point when he started looking at me, no one's going to hurt you, you know. Um, and I even said, you know, I don't even know what happened. And at that point, the one of the security staff said um, that he was in class and he started throwing chairs at people. Oh, wow. Yeah, so um, that statement seemed to trigger him because at that point, Stevie started, looked like he was going to lunge for the older security staff in the room, whose, whose name was Mr. Smith. And, um, but then I realized fairly quickly, it was more of a, a nonverbal statement on his part because he immediately backed up against the wall. He was just showing an emotion by doing that. And so I said to him, Stevie, why are you so angry at Mr. Smith? 
Dr. Bosworth, what what was he showing with that lunge? He was showing anger towards this man. You know, the, the other security staff had, had just told me that he had been throwing chairs, and that triggered him, and he started to lunge for this Mr. Smith, the other. Angry uh, gesture. Right, but it was a gesture because he then backed up against the wall. Mm-hmm. Um, so again, I asked him why he was so angry at Mr. Smith, and he yelled out, "He punched me in the stomach." Mm. Yeah. Um, now, luckily, I knew Mr. Smith, and um, he's a very kind, gentle man. I knew he wasn't really capable of doing something like that. But I also know that in the heat of a restraint, you know, it's kids are flailing around in a restraint. Um, Sometimes, you know, an elbow can hit somebody, something like that can happen. Um, So I said to Stevie, I think it probably was an accident. I don't think Mr. Smith meant to hurt you. And um, Mr. Smith nodded at that point. And, but Stevie was still looking directly at Mr. Smith. And, um, you know, there was still anger and distrust on his face. Um, and I said to him, Stevie, I'm sure he didn't mean it. Do you think you couldn't forgive him? I'm sure Mr. Smith is sorry. At which point, to my surprise, Stevie started saying, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, over and over again himself. And I kind of realized that, you know, this this must have be a child who's been made to apologize for things he he didn't even do in his life, you know, and it just kind of endeared me to him more. You know, I felt real compassion for him at that point and how helpless he was in this room full of adults. Um, He really sounds like a helpless, uh, large child, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So I said to him, Mr. Smith forgives you, don't you, Mr. Smith, who again affirmed that and um, sat with Stevie for a while. He was still crying, and I asked him if I could hold his hand. Um, You know, he needed comfort at that point, and um, in his helplessness and his agony, stood out more than anything else. Mm. So when I took his hand, he really started to cry. It was abandoned. And, um, you know, tears just pouring down his face. And it took a long time. But um, after several minutes, um, you could see that he was starting to feel better. His breathing was returning to normal. And... um, he seemed much, much calmer. Wow. Yeah. Did the other staff react to um, what was going on in the room with you? Um, There was a lot of quiet. 
Um, I heard some, you know, rustling about at some points. I think a couple of people left even at, when he started to calm down. Um, but they were all there observing. Um, you know, nobody was really saying anything to him but myself at that point. Mm-hmm. And he was looking at me, you know, which was important because I felt, you know, I've gained some trust from him. Yeah, yeah. And how did it end? Um, so I offered him some options at that point. I said, um, you know, we can go back to class, we can go to another classroom, and and a couple other things, and he decided that he was going to go to the classroom nearby with um, one of the people in the room who he was close to, who he um, liked. And so we both stood up and walked to the other room. And that was the end of the confrontation that was resolved. Yes, very good. Is this like other uh, restraint interventions, restraint episodes? Is uh, it, has this was this different than other ones? Um. So yes and no. Sometimes I will not arrive on the scene until a later point in in the restraint, and maybe the child's already calmed down or or whatever, or they were isn't calmed down. There's even times when you can't calm the child down and, you know, whatever's going on is so intense that they need uh, to be sent to the hospital or, you know, somebody called in. Um, but that's unusual. That's so, yeah, it was similar to other restraints in that sense. Uh-huh. What I'm wondering is if, you know, that what that nurse said to calm down, if that was more the tendency of the interventions um, that, than what you did this time with Stevie. Yeah, I think a lot of people, um, staff included, view these children as problem children and don't really don't really see that whatever, no matter how irrational they may seem, they have real needs and something was going wrong for them and some need wasn't being met. Um, and that emotions happen in people when they're frustrated, when their needs are frustrated. And if they don't get expressed, um, if they're not allowed to drain, as, as some people call it, they, the tendency to react that way again is, is even more because it's a real need. And, and by draining those emotions, you're able at least to get to clarify any misperceptions that might be involved because there's nothing standing in the way. 
So by the nurse telling him to calm down, she was just exacerbating his need, whatever that need was. At, at that time, you know, I didn't know for sure. Yeah. And you did help him calm down, but how you did it was, you know, very important and specific. Yeah, it was a different approach from what often is used, you know, just yeah. restrain, restrain, um, you know, suggest, try to distract them, um, do things to divert the anger rather than to allow it to come out in a healthy way. Yeah. Now, um, did his IQ have any role in the intervention? Do you think uh, him being lower IQ had an impact on things one way or the other? Um, I don't. The short answer to that is no, but I will say that sometimes children with a lower IQ don't have some of the sophisticated more manipulative or dishonest defenses that a child with a higher IQ might have. So for me, he was easier to read than some children are. And that certainly helped me to see, you know, what he was feeling and, and what exists. needed to be addressed. Yeah. 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 And um, do you know why he, he was placed in that facility? What, how, how he ended up there? I honestly don't know his specific case, mm -hmm. but I can tell you that most of the children that come there have had some real negative um, history. Either they've been abused or um, somehow mistreated, um, abandoned. Uh, some of them, most of them have had numerous psychiatric hospitalizations prior to, to coming to that facility. Um, they're kind of not eligible to, to come there unless they've had some real trauma in the past. I see. No, I, I haven't worked in a, a facility like that in years since I was in residency, but um, right when I was finishing residency, um, a lot of institutions were going to what they call restraint-free or like trying to really, really pull back from that. Um, it, have you seen that? Does it have an impact on, on uh, patient care or, or how interventions like this happen? Um, yeah, I'm, I'm a little bit more involved in that aspect as the medical director of a, of a residential treatment center. And um, there's very strict requirements about what needs to be monitored in restraints and strict requirements on reporting. And there's also a much more intense level of training involved in, in staff, you know, that would potentially participate in restraint. So um, certainly the physical aspects of a restraint are 
dealt with in a very concrete and upfront way. You know, mm-hmm. this is how you hold a child without hurting him, that kind of thing. Yeah. That's it. There's a question from the audience. What is the healthy way to get anger out of kids and young adults? How, how to help them get their anger out? Yeah, that's a big question. Yeah. Because it's, um, you know, it's situation dependent on one hand. Mm-hmm. There are places and times where it can't come out and you know, you have to do the best you can to try to allow it to come out as much as it can in those situations. But in the comfort of somebody's home, there's certainly the ability to address it. And to do that, you need not to shirk from it. You need not to distract the child. You need not to find reasons why they shouldn't be angry without first allowing them to say what they feel. That goes a long way towards discharging the anger in the first place. But you can even do things like telling them it's okay to scream, you know, or if you're worried about neighbors, here's a pillow, scream into the pillow, Um, go punch, punch a couch. You know, there, there are things that you can physically do to address a child's anger and and help them to get in a, into a better place so that they can talk rationally afterwards and and be able to figure out what's going on with them. Yeah, well said. I agree. Dr. Bosworth, anything else about Stevie's story or this encounter that you'd like the audience to know? Well, I don't know how many people in the audience might be wondering about medical orgone therapists and what they do, but I chose this case because I feel that in many ways it illustrates a lot of the things that medical orgone therapists do do, which is maybe in some ways different from mainstream psychiatry or or psychology. You know, some of the things that I can specifically think of are getting a person to breathe, which helps them to make contact with their emotions, encouraging the expression of emotion, building trust, clarifying misperceptions, you know, maintaining a position where you're meeting the person where they're at and not with some preconceived idea of what they should be doing or where they should be. Um, Dr. Bosworth, you you literally met him where he was on the floor. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. I was talking more on a figurative level. I know. Yeah. But I I think even even that, that your intuition of, of not having him come up to you, but you meet him where he was. That sounded important. Yeah, I think, um, you know, if you're too afraid, you're not going to be effective in that, in a situation like with Stevie. But it's, I've seen so many people 
talk about their patients with preconceived ideas. I, I'm not talking about medical or therapists, but people in the field, you know, and provide what I call prescriptives, which are, you know, well, they should do this and they should do that. And medical or therapists don't do that. It's important, critically important for a patient to discover what they need to do for themselves. And by understanding where a person's at and, and observing and, and waiting till you're comfortable addressing things, you're in a better position to reach the point where a person can make decisions, reasonable decisions for themselves. Mm-hmm. And, and that's how you started off this encounter, just by observing, just figuring out what's going on. And to me, that, that's the highlight, is, is just observing and seeing where things are before you do anything. Yeah, I think we finished this discussion so quickly because there was a lot of observing in it. And yeah. Yeah. That's true. Anything else, Dr. Bosworth? No, I think that's it. Well, this is a, 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 a wonderful, concise intervention of medical organ therapy in a restraint uh, situation. So thank you, Dr. Bosworth. Thank you, Dr. Burrett. How do you feel after listening to Stevie's story? What do you think? I was moved to hear how Dr. Bosworth connected to Stevie's misery and did what needed to be done, and gave him an outlet. The best way to help the ACO spread his knowledge is by letting others know about us. I hope you share this podcast with your friends and family and let them know about our work. You can connect with us at orgonomy.org. I'm Dr. Chris Burrett. Thank you for listening to the A Different Kind of Psychiatry podcast brought to you by the ACO. Since 1968, the psychiatrists affiliated with the American College of Ergonomy have been helping patients discover greater satisfaction, health, and overall well-being in their lives. Whether patients suffer with mental illness, struggle with addiction, or feel unsatisfied with their work lives or relationships, medical orgone therapy as practiced by the physicians at the ACO offers a way forward, often without the use of medication.